This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. When it comes to the media in the US, we often bash Fox News for spewing fake news. But what if it isn't just Fox? What if the entire US media system and landscape is broken? And if so, how did it become this way? I'm Dashran Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beatty, He's a lecturer in global political economy at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Welcome back to the show, Peter. Good to have you on again. Before we get into the problems per se, how much influence exactly does US media have on Americans and the globe? Thank you, Dashran. Good to be here. Well, the way I, I usually put it uh, to be brief is the media is God. Because when you think about it, uh, politics, it's a, it's, a, it's a topic that includes so much information. And unless you're living in a capital city and you're friends with, with major actors in the government, uh, you're not going to be getting information about politics directly through your senses, through your conversations, through your, your eyes and ears. All of that information has to come through a kind of logistical system, a delivery system for politically relevant information that arises in capital cities and places all over the country and the world, and then is delivered to tens and, and hundreds of millions of households via what we call the means of communication, that is the media. <clears throat> so when it comes to our political understandings, our political worldview, our, our ideology, the media are incredibly powerful. Uh, if they do not include important information that's relevant to our political understandings, then we're not going to get that information. Mm. We're only going to have available that information which is provided to us via the means of communication. Or, you know, if we live in, in D.C. or, you know, another capital city somewhere and we happen to, you know, eat dinner with diplomats and lawmakers <laughs> all the time. But for the vast majority of us, we rely on the, on the news media. That is our lifeline, uh, our, our sole window into the political realm. So with that in mind, right, um, the U.S. media... Um, you know, I remember growing up, um, you know, when we, when we learn about journalism, when we, when we talk about the press and, and the fourth estate and all these kinds of things, um, the US media was once hailed as the, the gold standard of journalism. I, I think, frankly, it's by, for many people, um, it's still, you know, they still see it that way. It's still hailed as such day. Was the media in the US ever good journalism in reality, even when we talk about back in the day, 20 years ago, and so on and so forth? Well, I think it depends entirely on, on the standard that you're comparing it to. So if, if you have a very low standard, like you're thinking of a system in which uh, journalists are routinely imprisoned for offending you know, powerful business people or political officials, then yeah, the US media system looks quite good. Uh, if you judge the U.S. media system by the standards of European media systems in the 1800s, I would say it, it looks really good. Uh, you had uh, uh, free schools or, or you know, government public schools throughout the country teaching people literacy. Uh, you had heavily subsidized uh, postal rates for the news media at the time. So the, the extent and spread of political information through the news media was, was probably greater than any European country uh, of that time. 
Uh, there's a great anecdote where uh, Alexis de Tocqueville visits the U.S. and uh, he's, he's kind of shocked through his travels not to find any, any peasants that he's used to finding in, in Europe who wouldn't know anything about politics because they don't read. Mm. So he says, ah, I'm in rural Michigan. He goes down some back road in the forest and he finds this, this cabin and he thinks to himself, aha, I finally found the American peasant. But then when he goes in, the, the uh, resident of this hut in the woods says, oh, wow, you're from France. I've got some ideas about how uh, France <laughs> its economy. <laughs> and that's all because there was a, a subsidized media system. There were uh, subsidies in the form of schools that would spread literacy. So the market for uh, political news media was, was bigger. So it, it all depends on, on you know, what, what your standard that you are uh, comparing the U.S. media system to. Uh, if it's a low standard, it's pretty good. If it's a high standard, it's not good enough. Uh, I tend to judge it by the standard of what would be appropriate for a true democracy. And in that, uh, according to that metric, uh, the U.S. media system falls short significantly. Why do you say so? Because I think the, the, the core idea, the core, one of the core requirements for a true democracy, a, a, a system in which the people rule, that is, all of the people share to an equal extent in political power. A requirement for that is a news media system in which you have the maximum of ideological diversity so that people who choose to inform themselves about politics so that they can participate in a democratic system actually have easily easy access to uh, a full range of different arguments, different policy ideas, uh, different perspectives on how the world works. If you're lacking in that, then, you know, if, if you watch uh, Rick and Morty, you might, right, might remember an episode where uh, I think it's uh, Rick is kind of enslaving uh, aliens to produce. That's right. And then when, uh, when Morty finds out about it, uh, you know, Rick has some kind of excuse as to why it's not slavery. And, and Morty says, yeah, but that's just slavery with an extra step. All of the excuses he came up with was just an extra step. And that's how I view a democracy inappropriate media system. If you're having a, a media system in which only certain ideas get presented, then you have something much closer to an authoritarian system uh, where you, you, you don't get to do whatever you want immediately as an autocrat. You just have to do an extra step. You first have to uh, get your view into the media system and prevent alternative opposing views from being in that media system. And then you get what you want. Even within, you know, this framework where U.S. was hailed as the gold standard of journalism, there seems to be a serious decline, um, you know, today, especially, you know, so compared to maybe years ago, um, what went wrong and why is there a growing distrust of the media? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think like you can talk about a, a sort of golden age for U.S. journalism in the post-war period mm. uh, up until, I guess, about the, the 1980s. Uh, but the reason why that's looked upon so fondly today is that it was the kind of high watermark of nonpartisan journalism, uh, where, you know, you turn on the the, the broadcast TV news, and you're not going to get a, you know, a Republican partisan perspective, or a Democratic partisan perspective, you're going to get a kind of, you know, middle of the road, kind of dull presentation of, of what's going on, maybe, 
you know, a description of what different partisans are arguing, but, you know, being very careful not to take a side. And so compared to the, the U.S. media system of today or even the U.S. media system of the, 19, the 1800s, when there was also a, a very uh, strong partisan media, um, I, th- I think that's why, you know, people look at, at that period of time as a golden age. And what happened was, you know, I'm kind of uh, shortening a long story into a, a very short summary. Right. But in the 1980s, you had the rise of uh, a very uh, entertainment-focused right-wing radio that became very popular. And uh, this was under the Reagan administration. Uh, they got the regulatory agency to drop what, the, what they had been enforcing called the, the Fairness Doctrine, which basically required that if you were going to present uh, a partisan view on subject A, you would also have to provide an opposing view on that same subject, give you know equal treatment to the right. issue. But that, that was dropped uh, in the late 80s, and that kind of provided the, the impetus for this massive growth in right-wing radio, uh, pioneered by uh, this guy Rush Limbaugh. In fact, I was first, uh, I first became interested in politics when I was a, a you know, 12, 13 years old by listening to Rush Limbaugh's show on the radio. Right. Parents and family really liked it. So that's kind of where the, this, this business model for uh, very right-wing political content became viable and all sorts of copycats came out. And by the end of the 1990s, uh, Fox News created a cable channel, which basically used the very similar format. We're going to give a very part, a very partisan perspective, a Republican partisan, a conservative perspective on the news. Uh, and then they created a, a cable channel that became uh, a very popular in the 2000s and up until today. And so now you have this, this very different business model. Uh, whereas, you know, before the 1980s, the idea was you provide a kind of boring middle of the road, nonpartisan take on what's going on. And that's how you attract a, the, the, the most number of, of eyeballs or ears to your program. Well, nowadays, the business model is you present something that is very partisan, that, that touches on our tribal identities, that confirms what we already believe, makes us angry about the other side and makes us happy about our side. That's what brings in the, the eyeballs and the ears to the programs. And so that describes how the, the U.S. media system has evolved recently. And it's also why there's such massive distrust uh, for the media. Um, right. And of course, it varies by Republicans and Democrats. So Republicans find their media sources very trustworthy. Democrats find their media sources very trustworthy. But they say the other sides are completely untrustworthy. And that's very interesting. And I want to get to that in just a second. But before that, among the mainstream media in the U.S., um, first of all, how would you describe what a main, mainstream media is? And among them, which is the worst to you and, and why? Oh, that is such a tough question. Well, the second part is very tough. The first part is <laughs> easy. So I would de- define uh, mainstream media as basically mass media, the, the media outlets that reach millions or even tens of millions of people. And the most used media source in the United States today is still local TV news. And you'll get very little actual information from local TV news. Uh, They're typically half-hour programs with commercial breaks. So there's maybe 20 minutes of a half-hour available for for actual news content programming. But a lot of that is geared towards, you know, attracting eyeballs. So they'll have 
you know, human interest stories that have no real political value, but uh, which are entertaining. And so they, they attract people to watch them. Um, then you've got your cable TV news, which don't get as many viewers, but the, the top programs on cable TV news attract a few million people every night. So you've got your, your Tucker Carlson shows on, on Fox. You've got your uh, uh, Rachel Maddow show on MSNBC. And, you know, these are, I would also call them mainstream and mass media because they're, they're reaching at least, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And then lastly, I'd include in there uh, the major national newspapers like the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, maybe even one of the, the conservative newspapers like Washington Times. I don't know what its circulation is, though. Um, they also have a big Internet presence. So, you know, the, the Internet has a lot of promise for being a kind of democratizing medium. But still on the Internet today, it's the old legacy media companies that dominate the same companies that dominate on, on TV, cable and uh, newspaper space also dominate online. And then lastly, also, I would call uh, certainly mass media is the uh, the, the right wing radio uh, space that still gets millions of people uh, to tune in. So it might not be mainstream in the sense that, um, but I, I don't know if it makes sense to, to disqualify a media source because it's only you know viewed by Republicans or Democrats now. Right. The whole system is so polarized. So I guess instead of mainstream, I would just call it mass yes. uh, media. So yes. that's the the the, the easy answer. part of the question. <laughs> Yeah, the, the easy part of the question. Remind me again what the difficult was. Which is the worst of... among the mass media. Oh, good God. So I, I vacillate between uh, whether it's it's Fox or, you know, what people call the, the liberal media, so your CNNs and MSNBCs. Now, Fox is the obvious answer because there's, there's definitely more outright misinformation uh, on Fox, the, the, you know, promoting of conspiracy theories about uh, uh, conspiracies against Trump that weren't real. Then there were actual conspiracies against Trump that were real. And those were covered seriously on CNN and MSNBC under the, the heading of Russiagate. Um, but you also have a lot of uh, fear mongering about immigrants, uh, which gets a lot of attention because it's a nice, simple story. It touches on our, our uh, psychological biases, in-group bias. Uh, it, it explains economic suffering in a way that, you know, it only takes a sentence or two to explain, whereas an actual explanation would take a lot longer. So, you know, first I would point at Fox, but then, you know, there's also a good argument to be made that the uh, MSNBCs and CNNs are actually the most deplorable. And it's because uh, I think it was Montesquieu had this, he wrote something where he said, you know, the, the worst form of injustice is the injustice that's perpetrated under the color of law. Because if you are, uh, you know, facing domination or exploitation or, or some other crime being committed against you, the first place you go to, to seek redress is the law, the courts, that the justice system, that's supposed to be where, you know, you get, you get help. But if you go to the, 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 the courts and then, you know, it's like you're a drowning person and somebody uh, reaches out a plank of wood and you think, oh, great, I'm going to grab onto this plank and they're going to pull me up. But instead of doing that, they use the plank to smack you on the head and try to make you yeah. drown faster. Well, that's the worst kind of injustice. So I, I kind of feel like it's similar to the, the MSNBCs and CNNs because they should be playing the role of an alternative to Fox or the antidote to Fox. 
But instead, what they've become is just the mirror image of Fox. So Fox is basically a propaganda uh, mouthpiece for the Republican Party. And CNN and MSNBC have evolved into the, the mirror image, which is essentially just a, a mouthpiece for the Democratic uh, establishment. You just described um, CNN, MSNBC, and the so-called liberal or the, the, the media that promotes Democratic Party's agenda um, as, as equally terrible. But why do you get um, quote-unquote um, educated people, people in our bubble, let's just call it that, you know? Um, why do a lot of people still hail CNN and MSNBC as this gold standard of journalism? If, if you look at uh, Fox and are horrified because you, know, you have enough information about politics to be able to tell that this is very misleading at best uh, propaganda a lot of the time on this channel, then it's understandable if your impulse is, let me just find the opposite of that, and then I'm going to embrace whatever the opposite of that is. And likewise, if you look at, if, if the information you have uh, leads you to look at the MSNBC and CNN programming, especially, you know, during the whole Russiagate fiasco, and you look at that and think, this is absolutely absurd, this is clearly uh, a conspiracy theory with very little basis in reality, but these journalists are, are treating it seriously. Let me, let me just go to the opposite of that. And then you can, you know, when you're, when you're looking at the media in that kind of a binary uh, framework, then the, the evils of one side push you to adopt the other, embrace the other side and kind of blind you to the, the possibility that both sides are horrible in their own different ways. Mm. And I have to ask the question just about Fox, even if your answer is going to be the same, because I know a number of people who believe in Fox News and their reasoning is because they don't trust mainstream media. They don't trust mainstream media or mass media, and hence they are tuning into Fox. And because they, I've, I've literally seen words like, you know, it's this independent, renegade media that's anti-establishment. You see, people who listen to CNN don't call it anti-establishment. And I think that's where... Um, the, the the difference perhaps is, you know, they, they say like, oh, Fox News is here to break the system and fight the powers that be, you know, like things, things like that. Um, and, and, you know, Fox is exposing the truth about the country. Why do a lot of people think this way? Oh, I mean, there's, there's, okay, so the, the fundamental problem, as I see it in the US political system is that you've got two parties that are not actually so different. They both serve disproportionately the wealthiest and most powerful people in the country, most powerful by virtue of what they own and the assets they control, how many people they employ, et cetera. Um, so, you know, then you've got a, a party, the Republicans, that uh, are more ideologically unified uh, and they have a, a simple message, and it, it has been ever since you know watching, listening to Rush Limbaugh in the in the '90s. Uh, it's always been criticizing the hypocrisy of the Democrats, and because the Democratic Party is likewise a party that is largely enthralled to the most powerful minority in the country, there is plenty of hypocrisy to point out. So the uh, Republican media outlets are able to largely truthfully point out a lot of instances of hypocrisy on the democratic side. Uh, whereas the democratic side media doesn't do as good of a job 
in pointing out the, 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 the most, I guess, pertinent example of hypocrisy on the Republican side, which is that it's largely a, a party of billionaires uh, employing millionaires on, the, on their channel to tell working class people that people even poorer than them are to blame for their bad economic situation. That is a message that you know, could be used by democratic aligned media, but it isn't, perhaps because it's just too uncomfortably similar to the, the situation of the Democratic Party. So I actually don't know why the uh, that, that Democratic side media <clears throat> haven't followed the, uh, the same kind of uh, trajectory. Uh, but I think it, it might also be that this what we now understand as, as right wing media, it, it had been kind of in the wilderness, in the desert for many decades, so to speak. Uh, after the war, during the, the so-called golden age of capitalism from uh, 45 to like late 70s, uh, right-wing ideology was very much outside of the mainstream. And you had these, these marginal outlets that were trying to evangelize and trying to spread uh, their version of conservatism and trying to take over the Republican Party, which they viewed as being uh, dominated by the liberal wing of the Republican Party. Um, so you had this kind of oppositional mentality within the, the right-wing media space when it was very marginal. And when it, it discovered the formula uh, that is, you know, being much more entertaining and, and humorous, when it discovered that formula to, to, to increase its audience size, it kept kind of that, that anti-establishment uh, tenor. But of course, it was anti the Democratic establishment. And there's plenty, you know, there's, there's no shortage of, of things to criticize about the Democratic establishment. Um, but the uh, Democratic side of, of the media system never really had this, this experience of being in the wilderness, in the desert, in exile, you know, being, you know, you have those types of media outlets, but they're just on the left and they're not mass media outlets. They're like little magazines, like, Jacobin that has like a few tens of thousands of subscribers or Monthly Review, a, a socialist magazine with a few thousand subscribers. Those would be the, the equivalent of the, the marginal right-wing outlets uh, for you know, the, the period from like 45 to the late 70s, but they have never gained you know, mass exposure. There aren't as many billionaires that want to invest <laughs> in creating a left-wing media empire as there were willing and generous billionaires willing to uh, fund the creation of a vast right-wing media empire. Right. So with that in mind, right, um, just to clarify something before we uh, move on, um, there is this perception by, you know, the way U.S. politicians frame um, their terminologies uh, or frame their narratives or the media, what the media is saying, and how uh, people like, you know, the masses also... Um, regurgitate these terminologies or how they internalize it um, because there is this sort of understanding or, or this, this just acceptance by the, the masses that the US media system is divided into the right wing uh, main, uh, mass media as well as the left wing mass media and they consider the likes of CNN, MSNBC and all left wing media. I can already see you laughing. Um, what's going through your mind when I, when I say, say all this? <laughs> well, actually what's going through my mind right now is, is having a conversation with a, a friend of mine who's, who's definitely more on the right. He's, he's from India. He is very uh, anti-Congress party. And so he's generally supportive of some of, of what the BJP is doing. Right. 
And so it was funny because uh, I, I just mentioned in passing something like, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm on the left. And he was shocked. He was like, what? But Peter, you sound so reasonable. How can you be on the left? <laughs> and then I, I realized that to him, the word left means like what I would call right-wing liberalism in the United States, like the position that you would see on CNN or MSNBC or in the Democratic Party leadership, right. which, you know, from a, from a global perspective on a, on a, a kind of global ideological spectrum, that just isn't left. Um, on social issues, on things like LGBT rights, yeah, I, it's, that's legitimate to say that they're left. But that's one or two very, very small issues. I think that's the problem is that, you know, the, what these words mean uh, is, is, for many people, is just not very accurate from a, from a more informed perspective. So, you know, they, they say there's a right-wing media and a left-wing media in the U.S., no, you really have a, a far right wing media and a center right media. If you judge ideological position by things like uh, what are your uh, economic policies that you support and what kind of foreign policy do you support, uh, you can't really make the case that the U.S. liberal media is anything other than center right. On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beatty. He's a lecturer in global political economy at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. After the break, I'll be asking him how the media actively contributes to polarization in the US. We'll be back with more on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashan Johan, and on the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beatty, lecturer in global political economy at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And we're discussing if the U.S. media system is broken. So, Peter, you brought up things like, you know, interests, corporate interests and, and things like that. So I want to tie back into that and ask how exactly does capitalism and, and monopolies affect the media and, and the sort of information that they put out? Well, in, in a lot of ways, and they're just inherently more complicated than uh, a system like, you know, the Chinese media system where you can say, okay, well, it's pretty easy to understand. You've got a publicity department that uh, issues guidelines for media outlets. And, you know, if you, if you go past uh, one of these guidelines, then, you know, they'll, you can have your story edited or censored or what have you. It's very easy to understand. But in a commercial system like that of the U.S., uh, a lot of people just assume that it's free because there isn't any overt government control as in the, 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 the Chinese political economic system with the publicity department that governs the media. Instead, it's, it's just much, much more complicated. And so the, I think the best way of thinking of it is just that there are a lot of different forces or pressures that operate on the U.S. media system that in the aggregate produce a result that's not much different from an overt propaganda system. And there's just many uh, aspects to it. So one of the most, uh, I guess, uh, simple aspects is that, uh, as A.J. Leibling put it, uh, freedom of the press is guaranteed to all who own one. Right. So yeah, you, you're free in the U.S. to say what you like in your media outlet. But if you're going to have a, media, a mass media outlet, you're going to need a lot of money. A newspaper even isn't cheap. Uh, a TV station is, is extremely expensive. Even radio uh, is, is difficult to compete with a lot, without a lot of money. So that in itself is, is something that 
shapes the content of the U.S. media system. If you have a, a, a shorter ideological spectrum among people with great wealth, well, that is going to directly translate into the media system because only people with great wealth can own a significant part of the mass media system. But that's just one tiny little aspect of it. Another aspect is a lot of these mass media outlets are owned by uh, large corporate conglomerates. So you've got all sorts of, of uh, possible pressures that, that enter the system through that aspect of it. So, you know, uh, NBC used to be owned by General, Ele- General Electric, for instance. General Electric would, uh, uh, was a military contractor, still is a military contractor for the U.S. They build a lot of nuclear power plants. So if you're working for, MS- or sorry, for NBC when GE owned them, you as a journalist might think twice if you're going to do a story about you know, corruption in the military procurement process or accidents at nuclear power plants, because you know that your superiors somewhere in that massive corporate structure uh, might you know, get very annoyed that you're hurting their business interests through your reporting. Um, but you know, there, you know, I could just go on for, mm-hmm. for uh, dozens and dozens of, of minutes, maybe hours, describing all of these little things. But the, the, the key thing is, is that there are a lot of small pressures that in the aggregate affect the content that, that the media produces. I just have one other one that's less yeah. obvious is source bias. So, you know, if, if because all of these mass media uh, outlets are commercially oriented, they're for-profit institutions, just like any other business that's trying to make money, you want to minimize your costs, you want to cut costs. So if you have a, a story uh, and one of your options to get information about that story is to send a journalist halfway across the world, uh, put them up in a hotel, pay a per diem for them every day, uh, get them to, to do weeks and weeks, if not months of investigatory work. That's an expensive way to get information about a story. A much cheaper way is just sending your journalist across the street to a press conference run by the State Department, where as soon as they get there, they're going to be handed a big fat information booklet that they can use to source their story. They can ask a direct government official questions which also is is good for you because then this is a very official source. You're not going to have any trouble when you reprint what the official said. Mm. If you instead say, you know what, there's not much uh, diversity of opinion right now in the government on this issue. Maybe I should go to NGOs or or some uh, political group, or maybe I'll look at uh, professors in academia to try to get different opinions. Then you've got a little bit of a problem because then it looks to your peers like maybe you as a journalist are being biased and you're trying to get your opinion into the story by finding someone who isn't a government official, who isn't, you know, a, a, the most, you know, uh, widely turned to expert uh, on the issue. So, you know, I'm just trying to give you like a, a few examples of the many, 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 many ways in this commercial media system uh, by which the end result is not too different from an overt propaganda system. Maybe you can give some examples on how like you um, media in the US on both sides of the aisle, um, you know, how they, they have a lot of similar viewpoints on um, what you would consider very important um, political economic issues or foreign policy issues, perhaps um, when it comes to US spending on the military, um, 
um, you know, how US media shapes global public opinion on certain, um, you know, invasion issues. Well, even in your question is the is the perfect example. Mm. That's both a political economic issue and a foreign policy issue. And that is just the, the annual uh, appropriations bill for the, the military system in the US. Uh, here, there really isn't much coverage or debate in the, the media. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're turning on uh, Fox or MSNBC or reading the Washington Post, the New York Times, or listening to right-wing radio. You're never going to encounter a robust debate about the level of, of spending that every year gets poured into the U.S. military system. Uh, we saw a lot of coverage over the past year over the so-called reconciliation bill that included uh, some, you know, one to two trillion dollars over 10 years, uh, meaning that, you know, it's just uh, 200 billion a year, whereas U.S. military spending is closer to one trillion dollars a year. So you saw a lot of debate over, you know, oh, is this too expensive? Can we afford this, this bill that includes social spending and a bit of spending on climate? It also includes some tax breaks for the rich. <laughs> um, lots and lots of debate about that. You'll have uh, Democrats on TV saying that this is very important. It's a great bill. You'll have Republicans saying this is horrendous. It's going to lead to hyperinflation. We're going to turn into Zimbabwe, et cetera. All sorts of debate. But when it comes to the military appropriations bill, there's never any debate of anything like that scope. You'll never hear someone say, you know, uh, we had really high uh, military spending during the Cold War when we had a, uh, a rival superpower with uh, even more nuclear weapons than, than we did. Uh, and then that Cold War ended. Shouldn't we be saving a whole hell of a lot of money? Why is our military budget more expensive uh, than it was back during the height of the Cold War, even uh, in accounting for inflation. That is not discussed. So that's that's a, a perfect example. But of course, it, it also applies to foreign policy more broadly, where you really don't get uh, different perspectives. You're not going to get a perspective on uh, the Venezuelan government, for instance, that is any different from the Republican or Democratic establishment perspective, which is it's an evil socialist country that's abusing their people and it's falling apart because socialism always falls apart, even though, you know, under Chavez, the trajectory was was extremely good growth, uh, massive reduction in, in poverty, in uh, illiteracy, etc. Uh, they don't talk about the sanctions on Venezuela, but, you know, you can just go around the world and, and pick any uh, country in which the U.S. military or uh, uh, security state has a significant presence, and you just won't get any real debate. You might hear, okay, there's a war in Yemen, and uh, you'll hear, okay, well, uh, the, the, there was a, a revolution with uh, some some scarily Iranian-linked uh, group in Yemen. So uh, the the international community, in quotes, is is <laughs> trying to bring back the legitimate government. You'll get that sort of thing. You might even hear. Uh, because there was a little bit of, of uh, movement in Congress to try to restrict funding to Saudi Arabia. You might hear that there are some criticisms about the humanitarian side of the war, but you'll never hear uh, a full-throated argument against U.S. funding, that, uh, an argument that says the U.S. government should immediately cut off funding uh, and all aid to the Saudi war effort and push for peace immediately. That is just not present at all. 
And that's the, the, the real problem. How would you respond to people, um, not extremists, um, people perhaps they are genuinely curious or, or, or they genuinely perhaps earnestly think this way and or they ask this question, you know, uh, maybe they, they ask um, the reason why there's no debate between CNN and, uh, and Fox, uh, just to give two examples on, let's say, um, US invasions, uh, military spending um, uh, and for certain foreign policies or, or why there isn't, why, or why both sides agree that socialism is evil and, and say these sort of things is perhaps maybe that's the truth. Um, and that's why both sides are, are not debating about it, and, and you know they are they are they're having the same um, they're, they're saying the same things. So maybe maybe U.S. really does need to invade these other countries. Maybe socialism really is evil, and that's why there's no debate. How do you how do you respond to that argument? Well, I mean that's a it's a good point because it it opens up uh, the most important epistemological question, like how do we know what we what we believe to be true or. How are we supposed to judge uh, arguments, et cetera? So I, I can't dismiss that at all. It, it could very well be that uh, the uh, political establishment in the U.S., along with the journalistic establishment, just so happened to arrive at the correct, objectively true views about all of the important issues in the world. That could be. But the other, the, the, the main problem is we can never be sure that that's true. And the only way that we can uh, approach any sort of certainty about our opinions on, on any of these issues is to be exposed to uh, strong arguments from all sides on that issue. If we are exposed to a strong argument from many different perspectives on every issue, and then we come to the conclusion, you know what? Uh, the original opinion uh, that I had stands up very well. I've seen somebody arguing my position with someone else arguing a completely uh, opposing position. I've heard that person argue with someone who agrees with me on half and disagrees with me on half. Uh, you know, all sorts of these, these debates with the evidence that, that, that you know, comprises these arguments being presented to me. Then in that scenario, I think it's, it's perfectly uh, acceptable to say I have a, a high degree of confidence in my beliefs. But the problem is uh, we are, 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 are placing a very big and dangerous bet uh, if we just hope that for the first time in human history, it just so happened that elites in this one country at this one moment of history just happened to be right about all the important issues. Whereas if you just look at a, a world map and throw a dart at it and then spin a, a, a wheel and get a different you know, time period in human history, I guarantee you it would take days and days of that dart throwing and wheel spinning to find any point in time on any part of the planet where we would say that elites in this part of the planet at this time in history happen to be exactly right. <laughs> that's very rare. And so I don't think yep. it's very wise for us to assume that that is the case today. And we shouldn't have to. If we had a, a, a democracy-appropriate media system, we wouldn't have to rely on faith. We would have robust debate from people arguing from all sorts of, of ideological perspectives. And then at the, at the end of those arguments, when we've seen all the evidence, we've heard all of the, the rhetoric, the different arguments, et cetera, then we could have a little bit more confidence in our, in our opinions. Right. So I guess what I'm getting from you when it comes to this is, um, you know, that it's, 
it's okay to have different opinions. We what what is the, the problem is there's no strong debate. There is no strong argument about um, economic issues. Um, you know, we are not getting uh, an actual left wing media that's you know one side that's saying socialism um, is good, for example, and so and so and so, and then the other side saying socialism is bad because of you know well. Um, constructed arguments and with facts and and all of these things. In fact, what you're saying is both sides are saying things like socialism is bad, um, you know, and and we don't we are not getting presented with the other side. Both sides are ignoring, um, you know, all um, packaging of U.S. invasions as this nice thing. We are not getting the counter argument. We are not seeing the robust debates about where billions and trillions of dollars are being spent. And how the country as a whole is, you know, structured the economic structures, the political structures, um, where actually a proper democracy um, in the U.S., for example, we are not seeing those sorts of debates. Yeah, exactly. That's precisely what I'm saying. Yeah. Hmm. So, another question I, w- I want to ask is: How has the media, or how does the media contribute to growing polarization in the U.S. and does social media is is the social media age that we are living in now make things worse? Yeah, that's a it's a good question. Um, you know, first I would I would of course uh, recommend my book, uh, Social Evolution, Political Psychology, and the Media and Democracy. But I have to say, uh, a book came out right after mine did uh, called Hate Incorporated by Matt Taibbi that that. Uh, focuses almost exclusively on that and precisely that aspect of the, the media system. So in my book, I look at uh, a broader uh, scope of, of history, um, but Hate Inc. looks at much more recent history and describes how the, the business model of media outlets changed fundamentally over the past couple of decades. And that is, you know, as, as I was saying before, uh, instead of trying to attract the, the broadest possible audience, by presenting a kind of middle of the road, nonpartisan, kind of boring, dull, you know, this is what happened. This is what that guy says. This is what the other guy says. Uh, Fox News really kind of pioneered the business model of playing to a partisan audience and giving them what they want. They want to hear the other side is very bad. And here's some examples of how bad they are. And they want to hear our side is good. We're fighting against the bad guys. And this is the evidence as to why we are so good. And that model worked very well for Fox. And then uh, it seemed like MSNBC and CNN, uh, certainly by the, the Trump administration, had fully transitioned into that business model, but just taking the other side of the audience. So now all of the uh, uh, committed conservatives and Republicans uh, tune into Fox and their uh, other more further right outlets, and then the uh, more liberal uh, pro-democratic party side of the audience has gone over to CNN and MSNBC. And then with social media, I mean, basically it's just a, a way of uh, kind of concentrating the effects of that, that basic uh, bifurcated media system. It's like a, a force multiplier to use like Pentagon speak. <laughs> um, so, and there again, you know, a lot of the, the problems arise directly out of the commercial orientation of these firms. They're all there to make money. Now, if you are a social media company, how do you make money? Well, very similar way to how you make money in any other aspect of the media business. You attract eyeballs or you get clicks 
So you keep people on your platform for as long as possible and you keep them engaged and clicking so that they see more ads and that's where you make your money. So if you're, if you're in charge of a, a Facebook, for instance, if you're thinking, okay, I want to uh, uh, create a uh, social media platform that will benefit democracy uh, by providing a platform for a robust and diverse debate about politics. So you, you make your algorithm such that if you can tell that the person is likely to be a liberal Democrat, you're going to make sure to show some posts that argue the other side and challenge your beliefs. Now, that would probably be good for democracy, but it's very bad for the media company because when people see arguments that, that challenge their beliefs, it literally causes them pain. It hurts. Mm-hmm. It makes them feel bad. So you sign off. I'll watch some sports or a movie or something instead. So what the social media companies have found is that you get much more engagement. You get people to stay on your, your platform much longer. If you curate that alg- algorithm, if you change that algorithm to make sure that they're only shown stories and posts that reinforce their beliefs. Then people feel good because everything they see doesn't challenge anything. It just reinforces what they believe and it makes them feel good because it's basically telling them, here, look, this is another reason why you are right. And so you get this kind of snowball effect where you start off with a a given political inclination and then you get more and more and more information to, to attach to that. And you roll it down the hill and it keeps attracting more and more snow. So your snowball gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you end up with a a very hardened ideological position. And the social media companies end up with more money because they've been able to keep you on the platform to see more ads because they've kept you safe from all of the ideas that might discomfort you and might make you leave the platform. Hmm. As we wrap this conversation up, Peter, um, I want to... Do just quickly talk about possible solutions. I, I mean, there's there's no there's no probably no quick solution to this problem um, because it involves a lot of money, huge corporate interests, and all of these things and all of that. But in a sort of you know just to think of of you know to 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 put an idea out there, what should people do, or can people do anything to to sort of fight against this, this, this broken media system and all. How do we fix the broken media system? And also, uh, if people, um, you know, whether people in the United U.S. or people outside of the U.S., if they are interested to learn about realities, um, you know, outside of, you know, the CNNBC and C- uh, MSNBC and CNN and, and Fox and all of that, if they want to find proper information about U.S. political economy, um, and all of these things, are there media outlets that they can go to? Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll uh, answer your last question first. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what can individuals do with the broken uh, democracy, inappropriate media system that we currently have? Uh, I always recommend that, that people uh, go to the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal for just basic factual information about what's happening uh, around the world. Of course, you know, the, the coverage of those two papers is going to be uh, primarily the, the richer countries because their uh, audience is, is, you know, wealthier people in richer countries, but they still do a better job of, of covering uh, events around the world than 
the New York Times or the Washington Post, where you see a much more ideologically uh, biased perspective. And that, that ideological position is really from like the, the State Department and the, the Pentagon. Um, whereas the Financial Times and Wall Street Journal historically have been better at presenting uh, you know, what is actually going on because their readership are, you know, a lot of them are, are wealthy investors who really need to know reality and don't want to hear a bunch of, you know, the, the way that people in the U.S. State Department are thinking about something. That's not as important as knowing, you know, what's actually going on. Um, those are, are expensive to, to subscribe to, but there is a uh, uh, an uh, add-on that you can put on, I think, Chrome and Firefox called uh, Bypass Paywalls. Uh, so you can you can access these sources without, you know, spending half your salary. Um, and then so that I, I recommend those sources for just basic, you know, factual events. And then for analysis, I mean, really, the only the only thing I can recommend is uh, tuning into a diverse array of, of political media that will give you, you know, diverse uh, ideological perspectives. So for people in the U.S., I always recommend uh, subscribe to Monthly Review, the, the socialist magazine, because there you're going to get uh, a very different perspective on all political economic uh, issues. Uh, then also check out the American Conservative, which will give you a paleoconservative perspective on uh, politics. And that is also absent from the mass uh, media system in the U.S. Paleoconservatives don't want the U.S. to be an empire. So in the American conservative, you can get that uh, ideological perspective that's absent from the, the mass media. Uh, I'd say check out, uh, read Jacobin for a kind of social democratic uh, perspective on politics. Um, I don't even recommend people go to any source for a mainstream liberal or mainstream conservative uh, perspective, because you're just going to get that through the ether, so to speak. Like so many millions of people tune into that. You're going to get those perspectives whenever you converse with somebody. Uh, and besides, you'll probably get it in the, the op-ed pages of uh, the FT. So that's what you can do. That's what I recommend for, for people who are trying to kind of create their own individual democracy appropriate media system in the absence of, you know, an actual democracy appropriate media system. But what can be do what, what can be done more broadly than that to fix the overall problem? I mean, I I wrote about some proposals in my book, um, but they're not my proposals. I'm just kind of taking ideas that I found from other people and kind of putting them all together in one place. And for for all of these, they require basically capturing state power. That means winning elections that you can uh, use the government to create the the media system that we need. Um, or you know, winning a revolution, whichever is easier in, in your in your uh, country, because then when you have uh, a government that you can use the power of government to enact media reform, uh, you can do what the Columbia Columbia jo uh, Journalism Review called the, the Uncle Sam solution. That is, uh, very generous state funding for media. And what people normally think of when they hear that is, oh, my God, if the government funds it, it's going to be just total state propaganda. And that is a perfectly legitimate worry. But we do have many decades in dozens of countries of experience with government funded media and what the, the, the widespread uh, result of investigations into these public service media systems find is that when you have uh, de jure, that is uh, on the books, official laws that prohibit 
government interference of media outlets that they finance, then the result tends to be a very uh, unbiased uh, media outlet. So, you know, that's that's kind of the core mm-hmm. of what I would want to see is uh, the commercialized system, I think, is is a proven failure. Uh, there, there are too many pressures that enter in the back door when you have a media system that is reliant on advertisers and reliant on uh, attracting an audience with, you know, the, the most, you know, uh, salacious coverage or the coverage that, you know, flatters the audience the most and never challenges their beliefs. That, I think, is fundamentally dangerous. And another aspect of, of using the government to reform the media would be, in my uh, view, would be to require all mass outlets, let's say, you know, in the U.S., um, an outlet with over a million uh, uh, viewers or readers or what have you over a period of, let's say, a week, they would be required to include ideological diversity within that outlet. So if you're a Fox News, sorry, you cannot any longer simply have a bunch of right-wingers giving their perspectives without having any left-wingers, without having any liberals, without having any paleoconservatives on. Sorry, that's that's not allowed anymore. Um, but if you're like a small uh, magazine like the American Conservative or Jacobin or whatever, you're not getting a million viewers or more or readers, then fine. You know, you can be part of the very partisan press, which also you know plays a very important role. But if you are a mass outlet, you have a public civil responsibility to present a, a, a wider diversity of ideological perspectives. So you, sorry, can no longer do whatever you like with your property to make more money or to achieve your, your political goals. That would be impossible in my you know, kind of ideal scenario. What about completely publicly funded media? That makes it similar. What I, it's just a rough thing I, uh, I have in mind, just as something that popped into mind. Um, similar to you know what you suggested about a media, uh, a political landscape where you know the mass media is funded by the government, but they have strict rules and and all of that. Um, what if we have mass media that you know functions like you know like with with big patreons in that sense, you know, and not literally, but but you know like how we have paywalls and all of these things. So the media doesn't take any revenue from advertisers from corporations from the government as well not from any political parties but purely from the people themselves would that work well i'd I'd like it if it did i remember like 20 years ago i was really excited by a a, a development in south korea Uh, it was called citizen journalism at the time and there was a website called oh my news that had you know, just citizen journalists. It would just be people out there who aren't employed by that outlet, uh, uh, recording events, writing analyses, et cetera. And I found that a very hopeful model some two decades ago. But the problem is uh, if to, to, to do the business, to do the actual work of journalism is a full-time job. It means spending your entire day at City Hall sitting through very boring meetings and and conferences and taking notes and interviewing people. It's not something that you can really do as a part-timer who isn't getting paid for it. Now, if you're independently wealthy and you live off of a trust fund, then absolutely, you can do whatever you like, and then you could really devote your life to uh, journalism. But in general, I think what, what that kind of model does is 
I, I mean, this is at least what it looks like in the, the U.S. today, is you do have you know, people on, on Substack, you've got people on YouTube, uh, on other uh, outlets, other, other social media uh, platforms, and they have a small audience that is like-minded, they, they think alike. And so they'll they'll donate. I certainly donate to a bunch of these, you know, uh, different small media outlets. But the I, I think we can just kind of look at the track record and say, okay, well, there's a lot of promise there. It'd be really nice if that generated maybe 500 times as much revenue as it's currently generating, so that they could expand massively, like to take uh, Jacobin from a a 10,000 you know subscriber magazine into a uh, national cable news channel with uh, tens of millions of, of weekly viewers. That takes hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to do. Uh, that's not going to be raised on Patreon or GoFundMe or what have you. So, I mean, I, I'm not against that, that idea. I think it's, it's great. And I, I certainly support a lot of these, these outlets, but it's not an alternative to the, the true mass media. Uh, in order to, to, to really get the attention of masses of people, you have to reduce their costs. And it's not just costs in the sense of direct payment. It's all sorts of other costs. Like, how do I even know that this thing exists in the first place? Now, for CBS, NBC, et cetera, you turn on your TV and you click the channel button a few times and boom, you're going to learn of the existence of CBS. What about monthly review? Well, if you listen to this this radio program, you now know, but the vast majority of right. people around the world have never even heard of it. And if they did hear of it, why would you all of a sudden think, oh, I should entrust my political understanding to this magazine I've never heard of before, except just now? So these are the kinds of costs I'm talking about. When you have a, a, a multi-billion dollar media conglomerate, you can subsidize these costs through things like advertising. You put up all sorts of billboards and TV ads and radio ads saying, hey, tune into my channel. It's very trustworthy. It's, it's got really good journalism. It's got ideological diversity, all of these reasons why you should tune in. But all of these small little outlets, whether it's you know, somebody's YouTube channel or their, their Substack or their Twitter account, whatever, uh, they might be very good and, and certainly worthy of, of supporting, but it's not the type of thing that's going to be able to reach the kind of mass audiences that we need if we're truly going to have a democracy-appropriate media system. On that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Peter. My pleasure, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Assistant Professor Peter BT, lecturer in Global Political Economy at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. If you missed any part of the conversation, you can check out the podcast titled Is the US media system broken on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.